Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In many places, the cocktail hour is an honored, even sacred tradition. And in few places is that more true than New Orleans. Today, we explore the fascinating evolution of cocktail culture in the Big Easy, its past, present, and future. First, we'll hear from craft cocktail master Neil Bodenheimer, who traces the Crescent City's long love affair with concocted libations in his book, Cure, New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them. Next, we'll swing over to Gravier Street to join flavorist Krista Cotton on a tour of her El Guapo facility where she creates her internationally award-winning bitters and much-loved cocktail mixers. Finally, bar owner T. Cole Newton talks about his book, Cocktail Dive Bar, real drinks, fake history, and questionable advice from New Orleans' 12-mile limit. It's five o'clock somewhere on this week's Louisiana Eats. While a well-timed cocktail may facetiously be called the cure for what ails you, according to Neil Bodenheimer's book Cure, traditionally that description is more accurate than you might think. The reason why we call Cure, Cure, is because it's about cocktails developing out of patent medicine. And I've always been really fascinated by that, that home remedies, that remedies turned into something that became enjoyable. They went from medicine to leisure. Neil explores the New Orleans link in that fascinating evolution, all the way through the essential role he played in creating the Crescent City's craft cocktail movement. And what he sees as the future of this thirst-quenching industry. Hi, I'm Neil Bodenheimer. A native New Orleanian, Neil Bodenheimer decided to explore the world before returning home to his roots. That journey included time spent working as a bartender in New York, just when the modern craft cocktail movement came into its own. Like so many, Neil eventually came home to New Orleans, bringing with him the vision to create a bar every bit as good as those he left behind in New York City. In 2009, Neil opened Cure on Ferret Street, New Orleans' first craft cocktail bar. Cure is also the name of Neil's first book. I was born and raised in Broadmoor, I left for a long time, and along the way, I became a New York bartender, and I had been working on the idea of what would eventually become Cure, 
up in New York. And when Katrina happened, it just it made I wanted to come home. And I realized that New Orleans deserved a bar that would have been worthy of New York. And and I, and I think that ultimately it's and I'm biased, but I think it's better than what we ever could have done in New York. I suppose then you were a New York bartender when craft cocktails were really coming into their own. It was a wonderful, fertile time to be a bartender. And as we, I, you know, I actually remember this incredible event that we hosted at one of the bars that I worked that was Campari was trying to sell Campari and they wrapped this incredible story around it as a love story and they were trying to sell it to nightclub goers and there was no market for it. And now Campari is a behemoth again internationally and it just shows you how far we've come. Oh my goodness. Well, Negronis warranted an entire section of your book. so As they should. <laughs> That's quite something right there. Um, from that amazing adventurous cure, 2009, you opened Cure. And I don't know if the neighborhood or the folks were quite ready for you. We learned a lot of lessons in the, <laughs> in the early days, for sure. In a lot of ways, the neighborhood really told us what they wanted, but it was also a dialogue in that we said, hey, this is the way that we think would be a great way for New Orleanians to to start to drink like again. And we were really lucky because New Orleanians were so used to craft cocktails in the form of Sazeracs and Vucarets and Ramos Gin Fizzes that it was actually a really fertile ground to kind of plant the seed of craft cocktails. And so New Orleans and Verrett Street were just the, the most perfect place to do it. Would you like to waltz me through your various establishments and the, the concept behind them and, and why you love them? It's like introducing me to your children. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It, 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 do, it does feel like that. Um, so, so, so we spoke about Cure. Cure is a, is a modern craft cocktail bar on Ferret Street. And modern in that it was kind of running cocktails, classic cocktails, through what I would say is the, the beverage equivalent of the slow food movement for, for cocktails. And so with that, we did a lot of classics, but we also did a lot of seasonal menus where we would go and we would do twists on classics and kind of explore what we thought the future of drinking was going to look like. But, you know, being a New Orleans bar, you know, we are always rooted in the past. And so that is a very important, you know, fundamental aspect of Cure is that we always have one foot in the past. So from there, we went and we did Canaan Table. And Canaan Table is a tropical bar and restaurant. And that is uh, on the north side of the quarter, on the Esplanade side. And we're getting actually ready in July to celebrate our 10th anniversary at Canaan Table. Unbelievable. Which, uh, you know, where does the time go? And then now we have Val's. And Val's is a Mexican restaurant. And not Tex-Mex, very traditional Mexican in like the Mexico City style. And from there, uh, we did Peixos and Peixos was just it w- was just a passion project. I mean, when we found out that it was Antoine Amadie Peixos' house, it just seemed like we had to do it. And, and the Sazerac company was was nice enough to let us use the trademark to name it Peixos. And so we have a very classic little oasis in the French Quarter on Toulouse Street. 
It's a wonderful little bar. It's tiny, beautiful courtyard, and very classic New Orleans. It's a little jewel box. It truly is. And then and then also we did Dauphine's, and Dauphine's is a much larger, uh, more ambitious restaurant that we uh, constitute one small part of. But it's been really uh, a great honor for me to get to share our culture with a different city. Well, you sure are spreading the good word of cocktails, my friend. And now you have assembled what I think is just a must-have for everybody's cookbook, cocktail book, history book, you name it, that bookshelf, this book belongs on it. And all you have to do is read the book and learn it, and you might be able to get a job at one of these fancy places. Well, that, I mean, this is our, our great our great marketing tool to maybe try and try and pull talent out of the woodwork for for our spots. But, but in all seriousness, it is, this stuff has been in my head and in in my partners and the the many bartenders over the years at Cure. Uh, It's, it's part of what we do and it's part of the detail of what we do. And, you know, that I've always thought that the, that the best cooks were the cooks that would do things that seemed very easy, that were very technique heavy. And you'd look at it and you'd be like, Oh, I can do that at home. And they're like, but no, you can't do it at home because you got to do it in the right order and the technique has to be right. And for us, I really wanted to give our readers uh, an idea and, and, and a, a simple idea in that I wanted it to be something that you can actually do at the house. It's all DIY friendly, but wow, it's the secrets. And, and it, it, really, it, it really is. It's some of the things that are the difference between a good cocktail and a great cocktail. And it's it's... You know, the devil's in the detail. It always is. Neil, you have a real love-hate relationship with a man named Stanley Clisby Author, don't you? Tell us about who he is and how you feel about him. Well, Stanley Clisby Arthur was a very complex guy. Uh, he wrote a really important uh, cocktail work uh, in 1937 called Famous New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them. So Stanley Clisby Arthur is credited as being one of the first people to put the New Orleans canon of drinks down in one place. And for that, I am exceptionally grateful. But the problem is, is that Clisby Arthur was not a particularly reliable historian. So he loved to tell a great story, but it wasn't always accurate and pretty easy to disprove. And so along the way, we spend a lot of time kind of unwinding Clisby Arthur's tales, but at the same time, the reason why the book is called Cure New Orleans Drinks and How to Mix Them is because without Clisby Arthur, we're not really sitting around talking about New Orleans' place in international uh, cocktail culture. And one of the things that, that he does talk about is that he does tell the story of New Orleans being the birthplace of the cocktail. Not true. But so what I like to say is that New Orleans may not be the birthplace of the cocktail, but it's definitely its spiritual home. So Antoine Amadie Peychaud did not invent the cocktail, but explain to us why he is so important, why you have a bar named Peychaud's. How did you find out it was his house? So it was actually not that hard to find because the Maison de Ville hotel had it in their in their history and we we were able to confirm that 
with some of the documentation that they had at the historic New Orleans collection. And so it was actually called the Pecho House. So it was pretty easy to tell. But what's really interesting is in what makes Antoine Amadie Pecho so important is that he created one of the great products in New Orleans drinking. And if you look at so many of the classic cocktails that are New Orleans classic cocktails, almost all of them have Pecho's bitters in them. Now, there are a few exceptions, and obviously the most notable is the Ramos Gin Fizz. I just loved the whole way you approached it and how you handled your enduring affection for Henry Ramos. So... Henry Ramos seemed, by all accounts, to be a wonderful human being and very unlikely bartender, bar owner. I mean, he was a teetotaler. And he never bartended again after the eve of Prohibition. Because you could really relate. It was the first time that I really understood that story. And I think that because we were doing so much of the writing during the shutdown, that it felt very personal to me, and and I felt very connected to Henry C. Ramos, and I and I feel like I maybe understood his decisions a little bit more. So, I think what really draws me to the drink is not only is it technique driven, and historically very relevant. I mean, incredible stories around the Ramos Gin Fizz. It delivers as a drink. It's very satisfying when made well, but. More than anything, I think that it is uniquely New Orleans. And I think that it was invented here. I think it was popularized here. And I think it is a drink that has traveled around the world that really puts New Orleans on the map. And that's not to say that the Sazerac or the Vucare don't do the same thing. But you can clearly see which cocktails those cocktails grew from. Whereas the Ramos Gin Fizz feels uniquely and purely New Orleans to me. Well... Neil, you have done so many wonderful things for this city. You know, your amazing work with Tales of the Cocktail, the way that you have spread our cocktail culture. You're just really one of my favorite citizens of this city. And what would be your last cocktail? Well, first of all, thank you. That might be the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. I appreciate that. And... Funny you should say earlier that there's an entire section on Negronis. I actually really love Negronis. And I love the balance of them. I love the fact that they're not super aggressive. There's some proof, but it's not over the top. I think the thing that I love about the Negroni and the thing why I think that would be my last cocktail is because I hope that there would be a last meal as well. And there is something about having a Negroni before I eat that I just love. It is truly a perfect cocktail. Neil, thank you for sitting down with us on Louisiana Eats. Poppy, thank you very much for having me. That was Neil Bodenheimer, author of Cure, New Orleans Drinks, and how to mix them. Coming up next, 
Flavor Queen, Krista Cotton, gives us a tour of the expansive new El Guapo facility. Along the way, we'll learn about the bitters and mixers she crafts there that are quickly becoming an international taste sensation. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. One local business that has taken the cocktail industry by storm has a unique distinction. It doesn't sell alcohol. El Guapo Bitters and Syrups creates flavorful, alcohol-free mixers that are found at the heart of some of the world's best cocktails. Georgia native Krista Cotton began the business in 2017 and has seen her fledgling company through the explosive growth spurt it experienced since being pushed almost to the point of bankruptcy during the pandemic. When bars and retailers who had made up the vast majority of her customers began to shut down, El Guapo was being left in the lurch. But then... When all those people confined to their homes began mixing their own cocktails there, web sales exploded, and Krista and her crew pivoted to -to direct-to-consumer sales. Business has been so good. In 2022, El Guapo moved from their 3,000-square-foot factory to a facility 10 times that size. Krista gave us a tour. All right, so here we are at our new facility on Gravier, our new home. So we went from, you know, about 2,200 square feet, I think, to 16,000. Big difference. It just goes to show you how the business is growing. (laughs) I know, it's pretty wild. So we can process, you know, 2,000 orders within a week. That's pretty much our capacity right now, but we were probably... 18 months ago, only able to do like 200 to 250. So we've been able to 10x that, you know. So do you have your own Mardi Gras crew? (laughs) 
Kinda. So we figured out pretty quickly that a big part of this business is always doing um, recipe demonstrations and being able to put new content out on our blog, but also social media. And it's all set up so that our film crew can come in here and set up the lights and the power and we can literally be ready to go with cocktail demonstrations or we can slide that out and put a couch in there and do interviews, but it's really just to save uh, time and money on demonstrations and then going further on that content piece during uh, COVID everyone was making house floats and I wanted to be a part of that and be a part of the you know new tradition in New Orleans so we hired some Mardi Gras artists that were out of work and we made the crew do cocktail so all of these massive cocktails that you see here and you know our huge sign over there I think that's three feet wide uh, that says El Guapo that all actually goes on our house for Mardi Gras really how could you have more fun like you just have fun this is your life I mean I feel like if if you love what you do you figure out a way to make it fun and it never really feels like work but you know it's always it's very creative I feel like we live in New Orleans and that's a part of the community but we've really had a good time with this and I feel like a lot of the success has to do with the fact that we're innovating but and we have a really strong team but we're always making it creative and fun and like pushing forward to do new things okay so when I first started I was doing bitters in 10 gallon uh, batches and syrups were 20 gallons Eventually mixers were 20 gallons and then we could do four vats a day. So we were kind of maxed out at 80 gallons uh, is what we could produce in one day. Now with this big tank that you see behind me, this one can do three gallon, 300 gallons at a time. And we can actually, with two shifts, fill that up and do three different um, production runs. So that would be just with one kettle, 900 gallons. So it's all set up for future growth. We would like to be able to stay in this building. Um, you know, we were smart about all of our uh, electrical choices, all of our subcontractors and contractor, were, they were all really great and made, you know, really terrific recommendations, but we're really set up to be in this building and operate for a long time to come. How have your, the numbers of your employees grown? When, when we, when we met last back on Chapatulas, how many employees did you have then? You know, I'm trying to think. I think at that point we had four full-time people and a handful of part-time people right it was a year and a half ago when we did that so so now we have 20 people but that's I know it's crazy what do you think is the most unusual rare exotic ingredient you've got here mm, yeah, honestly probably the black lime uh, so we we partner with burlap and barrel they're a single origin spice importer that is based in Brooklyn so they have a black lime that is uh, grown, well, they're regular limes that are grown in Guatemala, and then they're sun-dried uh, by the farmers and then turned, uh, hand-pestled into a powder. If sneak peek, you're the first person we've told our newest product will be black lime margarita. And the best part about that is you shake it up and it really does have the black flex in it, but oh. it's just a really cool experience. It's really good. And I love that it's another collaborative chef partnership and that really is kind of how we got started and it's what we really care about so it's a win-win-win you're supporting three small companies when you buy that one product i've always been so fascinated by people who have these careers as like a flavorist as a the food science flavorist who here at el guapo functions in that capacity who's who's the person with the flavor you're looking at her. That's what I thought. All right. I so, expecting that. <laughs> yeah. So I helped my parents open 13th Colony Distilleries when I was in college and sort of always say I have a dinner time MBA. I learned more from my dad than I did at any college class at Auburn, even though I love, I love them so much, War Eagle. Uh, but I, you know, I've 
did the real estate thing for a while. I helped open the distillery. I worked in advertising and then I really wanted to have my own brand and came back to this idea by starting my own company and acquiring the El Guapo trademark from the original owner. So my grandfather was a farmer. His, his parents were farmers that has sort of always been a part of our family. And I, you know, I grew up in South Georgia in a, in a farming community in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so it sort of kind of took different pieces of what I was raised around and put it all together. So it's the, a lot of our passion for supporting farmers is really about flavor profiles and it, it's the economy, but it's also the flavor profile and making sure we're getting the best quality ingredient that we can for every single item that we're producing. So which comes first, the ingredient or the idea? How does all that work? So it's, it's worked both ways. I think it kind of depends on what you're working on. Uh, and we have different people on the team that come to us with ideas and we're always willing to listen. And if we hear it from a team member, if it's a repeated request from customers, we'll add that to our list. And sometimes it just, you know, you gotta wait until you're, you have the opportunity or the ingredients to do a recipe, but we're always thinking about it. It's my guess that people are finding all sorts of amazing applications for your products. What are some of the craziest things you know that people are doing with them? Oh my gosh, so the reviews kill me. They're so funny. We had somebody recently write us like paragraphs telling us that the best hot dog recipe was putting crawfish boil bitters in the boil that he would boil his hot dogs in. It was the craziest, like, thing, but it does happen. We have another chef in town who uses crawfish bowl bitters on top of his oysters, but we have really gotten more into bitter baking applications. So really? I, I, that is something I don't know about. Yes. So it all started, uh, David Chang's team did a chocolate chip cookie recipe and they used our chicory pecan bitters instead of vanilla extract in the recipe. Uh, but we did a, um, I call it scented whipped cream, but we put two tablespoons of our chicory pecan bitters in fresh cold whipping cream and make fresh whipped cream out of it. It's really, really good. What is your number one product? Oh, so COVID really changed that for us. I, I can do it by product line. Chicory pecan bitters has always been far and away the most popular, iconic bitters flavor. Chicory coffee and pecans are you know very uh, omnipresent in New Orleans, and a lot of people just know that that's a great product. So chicory pecan is the top bitters product. It used to be that tonic was the most popular syrup, but honestly, uh, we came up with this like margarita recipe that we posted, and it went viral. So now the lime cordial, we sell essentially an entire batch of lime cordial every week at this point which is crazy but it's all because of this one recipe that we posted everybody loves it so if you haven't tried the lime cordial try that <laughs> and you can find the recipe on our blog it's a tahine margarita but the um, when we posted that for whatever reason it really resonated with people and the lime cordial handily overtook the tonic after covid so where's el guapo going in the future what new products are you working on? What, what like that can you tell us about? Uh, we've really learned through the gift box that Southern Living put as their number one gift for men at Christmas last year uh, that people want more gifting items from us. So we're working on some new prototypes that will put different products together, but um, in, a, in cocktail format. So maybe you'll get you know, a box with a bitters and a syrup together with the recipe card packaged differently. So we're trying to think of ways to use the recipes that we already have that are very popular and do it in a new, more innovative way, but then also looking at new recipes and recipe development. We always have something going on. Your distribution, is it just within the United States 
or tell us a little bit about how far New Orleans' own El Guapo reaches. So we get new inquiries all the time. I'm actually, you know, I got a new one last night from somebody in Sweden. Um, it ha it's, it's crazy how this thing has expanded, but we are currently in 49 states. You won't be able to guess the one we're not in, but we're working on that. Um, and then we are in five countries, but I'm very excited to go to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. One of our competitive advantages is that all of our bitters are actually alcohol-free. So 100% alcohol-free, there's no alcohol in them. So um, going to the Middle East, you know, there's a lot more regulation on alcohol there, but there's a big demand for bitters. So we are working on a distribution deal. We haven't finalized that yet, but I'm actually going over there to kind of get the lay of the land. There are a few different uh, Louisiana people that actually uh, are there working on other concepts, so it's a good opportunity to collaborate and connect, but also work on a distribution deal in the Middle East. Well, in my list of top 10 New Orleanians who are putting us on the map and keeping us on the map, you are at the top of the class, Miss Krista Cotton. Thank you for everything that you do for this city that we love and for that industry that helps drive this city. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate that, and thank you for having me. It's been a long, strange trip, is what I always say, but it's a lot of fun. I'm still very motivated, and I'm excited to see what's next. That was Krista Cotton of El Guapo Bitters and Syrups, one of New Orleans' youngest business tycoons. How did absinthe, one of the original crucial ingredients in a Sazerac, become available again in the U.S.? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How did absinthe, one of the original crucial ingredients in a Sazerac, become available again in the U.S.? 
The credit for that achievement goes entirely to native New Orleanian chemist Ted Bro. In 1993, a research lab colleague made a comment about absinthe that raised more questions than answers about the mysterious banned elixir. That set Bro out on a voyage of discovery that culminated with his distillation of the first legal absinthe available in America in 2007. Today, there are over 40 varieties of absinthe available widely, but contemporary absinthe drinkers have New Orleanian Ted Bro to thank for the new renaissance this vital Sazerac ingredient is enjoying now. I'm Poppy Tooker, and real absinthe makes for some good Louisiana drinks. This is T. Cole Newton. I am the author of Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History, and Questionable Advice for New Orleans 12 Mile Limit. I am also the owner of the bar's 12 Mile Limit and the Domino. T. Cole Newton, or Cole as he goes by, is not a native New Orleanian, but his presence in the city has been felt for over a decade. After a stint tending bar at Commander's Palace, Followed by the bar manager's job at Coquette, in 2010, Cole opened 12 Mile Limit, a dive bar offering fine cocktails on a residential corner in Mid-City. In 2019, he added his casual bywater wine bar, the Domino, and then in 2021, he published Cocktail Dive Bar. His head-turning book not only documents every one of 12 Mile's original cocktail recipes, but also serves as part comic book, part coloring book, and part memoir, including a very personal take on Cole's own relationship with alcohol. Between the pages of Cocktail Dive Bar, Cole tackles topics like alcohol abuse, sexual harassment, and gentrification, complete with instructions for people who might, like Cole, want to own their own dive bar. Yeah, I really wanted to share some of the ethical and emotional landscape of bar ownership because it can be a real minefield just trying to figure out what the right thing to do in any given situation is, how to approach a guest who's too inebriated uh, to continue to serve, how to navigate the sexual violence, gentrification. There are a lot of heady issues that come up in bar ownership, particularly in the in bar ownership in a neighborhood that is going through the demographic changes that, that mine is. Let's go back to this corner of Bowden and Telemachus. You moved 12-mile limit in there how many years ago? Almost 11 now. You did save that building for a very important use because those corner neighborhood bars just got demolished. Yeah, I, I legitimately think that you're right. I think that any any reasonable person who purchased that property at that time would have done a sober evaluation of its um, needs 
and would have torn it down and built probably a house or two. And you know, people need homes. But I really think, and we've talked about this before, that that the neighborhood bar is a is a diminishing institution, and that's a really sad thing. And that building would not be a bar today if I hadn't bought it. I, I guarantee you that. I think you're 100% right. But I also recognize that me being the rich white man that I am, got to own all of those identities and recognize that the privileges that they convey, um, me being those things attracted people who more or less looked like me to this space that had previously been um, patronized by primarily black people, by people of color. And that changed the neighborhood. And recognizing that the bar has, if nothing else, accelerated that process in the little pocket of mid-city that it occupies. I am complicit in those systems that I don't that I feel bad about. And while to a degree they're intractable, I do have power. I do have agency. I do have a voice that can be used to shape policy that can help prevent gentrification from being as painful, from being as inevitable as it sometimes feels. When did you realize, did, when you bought the property, were you thinking, oh, I'm kind of feeling like a gentrifying white bar owner here? Did you, or did it dawn on you, look what's happening? I think I would be, I would, I'd be lying if I pretended that I wasn't aware of what my being in that neighborhood would mean for the neighborhood. I think I, a part of me always knew that. And I think part of me always tried to do it right. I tried to hire people from the neighborhood for positions for which they were qualified, which at the time was like, there weren't a lot of, you know, fancy cocktail bartenders in that little pocket of mid-city. So I, but I hired people for the kitchen. I hired people for uh, maintenance and, and, and uh, janitorial work. But ultimately that too is, it can be very uh, self-perpetuating, that those are not very visible positions. So when a guest would come into the bar, they wouldn't know that, that, a significant portion of our staff uh, was hired from that neighborhood because the person that they would see is the bartender. And the bartenders, more often than not, racially at least, looked like me. It was really inspiring and empowering to me all of the time that you spent on a topic that nobody ever touches, rape prevention, and along with that, 86-ing drunk customers. Yeah. I mean, the the sexual violence prevention in bars is something that's very important to me because I recognize that alcohol is the number one date rape drug. People use it for all of the reasons that you would use a pharmaceutical, like drop a pill in someone's drink. Alcohol does all of those things. It impedes our ability to form memories. It, it messes with our judgment. It messes with our motor function. It induces drowsiness. These are all of the things that people look for in a date rape drug. And in addition to all of those, it's socially acceptable and widely available. And so you can get it anywhere. And on top of that, people ply that at bars. I, uh, this, was, this is not uh, a scientific analysis, but I have a friend who works at the, the Tulane University Health Center. I mentioned this in the, uh, the essay about sexual violence prevention in bars. And it's a, uh, that, that m the vast majority of the people who report having been raped have been drinking socially with their rapist the night of their attack. It seemed so incredibly smart to me that you included in the notices that you put in your restroom the phone number to the bar. 
that was really smart. I've that never was, uh, seen that before. I'd never seen that before either. A lot of a lot of the ones that I've seen when I was doing research on this and trying to figure out what our messaging would be, and it evolved over time. And so this was the the recommendation of our staff at the time was to put the phone number at the bar. So if you're if you're stuck in the bathroom, you've locked yourself in. And the ba- bathrooms really can be that space like where that respite where you can just get away and be alone in that public space for a little while. To being able to communicate with the bar staff directly from that location felt like kind of a breakthrough. When the customer becomes drunk, um, the customer may get 86 How do you navigate this in such a way that a customer may even want to return if you want them to return? I think the the last essay in the book is about that, is about how to navigate 86ing a guest, how to how to kick somebody out of your bar in a way that ultimately the goal for me, the measure of success that I have for myself in this uh, in these interactions is if they thank me at the end of the, <laughs> like once they're outside and we're like having that different conversation about making sure they can get home safely, but they're outside of the bar, they're not, they know they're not going to get served anymore. They know they're not uh, going to be allowed back in that evening. Be like, okay, well, you can come back tomorrow. Uh, and if they say, okay, thanks, uh, then, then I feel like I've done my job. But I think underlining that, those interactions, all of these other interactions is recognizing that at people's best and at people's worst, that we all are deserving of respect and to be treated as a person. So just just because you've gotten drunk at my bar does not mean that you should be ridiculed or that people should take the opportunity to um, – that we're, we're cutting you off and so we're going to treat you – like you've made a foolish choice. Like, no, you, you had a drink at my bar. Thank you. I, I, my lifestyle depends on you making that choice time and again. Um, so, But recognizing that we've all been there, we all sort of are in this journey together, that, that, that continuing to demonstrate respect and compassion for people who don't necessarily merit it in that moment, but recognizing that they're not, they're not firing on all cylinders. And we've all been there. Like, I'm, I'm not anyone to judge someone for making poor choices while drinking. Lord knows I've made enough of my own. Let's talk about your personal relationship with alcohol, because it certainly has changed and evolved over your lifetime, hasn't it? It has. I um, I was, I would describe myself as a problematically heavy drinker from, pro- from about the age of 15 to about the age of 30. That was when I started really reevaluating my personal relationship with alcohol. But this was after a decade and a half of every every significant relationship I had. The the my partner would say, "Hey, I think you might have a drinking problem," and I would brush it off. It's like, "Oh, it was you know, it was the Fourth of July. What do you want?" It was like, "Oh, it was a wedding." What? Those kind of rationalizations that people have. Um, but I went through cycles, and it was pretty predictable, ultimately. It was about every six months I would do something stupid, not, not dissimilar than, than going to the saint and getting blackout drunk and passing out on the sidewalk. That was hardly a unique example. Um, if I would do something stupid, I would quit drinking for a week, a month, some, some specific period of time. Uh, then I would start drinking very carefully. And then I would slowly start to feel invincible again. And I would start drinking much more liberally. And then I would do something stupid again. And it was about a six-month cycle that repeated very continuously for about for most of that 15 years. And eventually I realized that I was not – I was approaching the problem from the wrong angle. That I, I couldn't really – like I was – I'd gotten lucky so many times 
Um, yeah, with, ending up in the hospital with mm-hmm, alcohol I, poisoning. I was, that was that night. like a super That's, shocking sort of wake-up call. It was, fortunately. I think a lot of people, that might happen to a number of people, and they think, oh, that was weird, you know, <laughs> and then just go on with their lives and chalk it up to an anomaly. And instead of recognizing it as, as part of a pattern of behavior that was only likely to escalate. How did you change this? It was... Uh, and I talk about this later in the book, um, in the in the afterward, actually. So it, it sort of bookends because the early chapters talk about my dawning realization that I have a drinking problem, for lack of a better term. And then another night, which also involved uh, drinking at the Saint, uh, a font of, of interesting decision making, if ever there was in the city, um, that I wound up asleep on the sidewalk again. And it was... Uh, it was one of those times where I, I just it was it was it was enough. It was enough to realize that while I'm, I'm glad that I never got to a point where I was physically dependent on alcohol. It, it alcohol is a hell of a drug. The, the if you go cold, if you're physically dependent on alcohol, if you're that level of alcoholic and you quit cold turkey, it can be it can be lethal. But I think that was the dawn. The, this, the, the second time is not even accurate that I f- fell asleep on the sidewalk while trying to get home in a blackout state. That, that happened probably half a dozen times in my life. And that one was the one. Uh, it was because, it was because my, again, my fiance at the time, now wife, found me um, in that state. After hours after she stopped being able to get in touch with me on the phone, she decided to go out and actively look for me and found me asleep on the sidewalk and saw my body and thought I was dead. And that was like seeing her go through that. And I think a lot of people also, and for better or for worse, you have to come to a point where you realize that your actions have consequences not only for yourself but for other people. And I think that that I maybe I, just, I didn't value my own health and safety or I thought I was invincible. But seeing seeing how that behavior affected the people that I loved and cared about um, – was really more dramatic for me than just the consequences. Like the, waking up in the hospital wasn't what did it. It was it was knowing that my wife to be thought I was dead, like and like had every reason to. It wasn't even an irrational feeling. Uh, that that really set the fire. Well, it's clear from this conversation that you have learned many lessons along the road of life and. All of these things are in the book, but it's also a cocktail recipe book. And I was thrilled to see in print and have access to making at home a Bowden, a great idea, which also happens to be one of my favorite 12 mile limit drinks. Bravo. Great book. Thank you. The, ultimately, it became more of a Trojan horse. Like, I recognize that there's an acceptable format for a bar owner to reach this audience as a published author, and the acceptable format for that is a cocktail book. And that's what people know me for. I'm a mixologist. I make drink recipes. Here are my drink recipes. Now that you're here, we can have these other conversations. But it's, you got to do that first part right. You got to the, the recipes have to be good. They have to be well-considered. They have to be thoughtful. They have to be creative and diverse. And I think we've done a good job of representing the 12 Mile Limit cocktail program in its idiosyncrasies, but using that to draw people into these deeper conversations. That was T. Cole Newton, 
owner of the Domino on St. Claude and Dive Craft Cocktail Bar 12 Mile Limit in Mid-City. His book, Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History, and Questionable Advice from New Orleans 12 Mile Limit is available everywhere books are sold. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Reitz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 